Okay, well, this is the, the last talk of the retreat. You're probably pleased to know. <laughs> um, I'm going to start off with a story. <clears throat> it's a story which unfortunately doesn't have a happy end. It's the story of the foolish and greedy monkey. Um, which is, for those who are interested in looking it up, is, can be found in the Sangyutta Nikaya, the Connected Discourses of the Buddha. I think it's 47 in the Sangyutta Nikaya. The wise and foolish monkey. Um, the story goes something like this. I'm going to paraphrase, obviously, because I haven't got the text in front of me. But um, tra- hunters trap monkeys. You heard one way of trapping monkeys the other night, and I said there was another way, and I didn't get around to it and actually explaining it to you. There's another way of trapping monkeys, which is um, often hunters in India, and particularly in ancient India, used to lay down big kind of sticky masses, which were sweet and tempting um, to trap monkeys, but um, they were actually full of tar and things like that as well, so the monkeys would get stuck. And the wise and foolish monkey on one of the, the sort of the foolish monkey and greedy monkey um, is travelling along one of the paths where the hunters have put one of these balls. And uh, the monkey looks at it, looks at it with interest, smells it, it smells sweet, and it puts a hand in. And the hand is stuck. It says, hmm, I know what I'll do. I'll get my hand out by putting my foot in. <laughs> So it puts its foot in. Oh. Foot stuck. I know what I'll do. I'll put my other hand in to pull both my hand and my foot out. Puts in its other hand. Now it's got three limbs stuck. <laughs> uh, there. Then he goes on and puts in the other foot to try and pull out his three other stuck limbs. Now he's got four stuck limbs. And then he says, I know what I'll do. I'll put my head in. (laughs) (laughs) To pull out my other limbs. Well, we've got one hell of a stuck monkey by this time (laughs) um, who's trapped. I won't go on to say what happens to him. It's not very pleasant. Um, Now, this is obviously uh, a little metaphor, a little story about you and I and sticky pleasures (laughs) that we get stuck in, um, in the sense that we move towards sensory things and we somehow get stuck by sensory things. The sensory thing in itself is not a problem. It's what we actually bring to it, looking for it, within it almost the over-evaluation we have. The little story of the monkey just shows the monkey's looking for something sweet and he's stuck, he's trapped by his craving for sweetness, for something gratifying, for something that is going to get back from it. Now, in a way, this is a good little story for you and I, as I say, because what it actually shows us is the way that we get entrapped by sense pleasures by sensory things. The sensory thing in itself, and let's face it, we're embodied creatures, so sense stuff is coming in all the time. You know, we couldn't have it any other way, could we? 
we are sensory. We've got eyes, we've got ears, we've got tongues, we've got noses, and of course we're contacting all of that mental stuff that's going on around, you know, going on in our heads. However, what do we bring to it? What are we looking for in our sensory pleasures? Let's just take the ordinary senses, the way the eye is drawn to beautiful things, the ear is drawn to beautiful sounds, and so on and so forth. Usually it's a sense of something coming back out of it, some degree of pleasure. However, we're not just content with the pleasure, we're looking for something else within it. Something that perhaps... And again, I'd like you to inquire in this, as this is the last talk, perhaps that it can never give, it can never deliver to us. The object itself will never give us back what we're looking for within it. What we're looking for within it, I'll leave you to try and discern. Perhaps suggestions would be we're looking for contentment, peace, gratification, all of these things from the object. Now this is a very good version of what the Buddha calls unwise attention. Ayanasa Manasakara in Pali. The unwise attention which we bring to the ordinary things of the world expecting them to provide something which they cannot provide. Our search in the world, perhaps, I'm going to use this word, I think it's not a terribly good word, but I'll leave you to interpret as best you can in your own way, is our search in the world is usually one for happiness. It's certainly not a search for misery. Um, As the Dalai Lama is so fond of saying, virtually every talk I ever hear him give, is always saying, all beings are looking for happiness. All creatures are looking for happiness. You know, that might mean different things to different people, but I think that's you know, a pretty good summation of what's being sought after in our journeys through life. <clears throat> All of us are searching for some degree, perhaps, of peace, contentment, something we might put under that rubric of being happy. Unfortunately, a lot of the times we get lost on our way we get lost in the thickets of sensory stimuli which appear to be very enticing and which also appear to be very gratifying and hold out the promissory note of happiness for us. You know, there it is, dangling in front of you, the promissory note of the very things which the world has to offer in terms of its... I've said it virtually every night, the goodies of the Western world. If you look closely at the advertisements, (laughs) they're very funny actually, aren't they? They're always telling you how satisfied you're going to be, how content you're going to be, you know, how, what a good person you're going to be if you have this particular thing, well, at least until the next model comes out, you know. It's always this sense of, you are going to be better (laughs) if you have this. (laughs) And what happens? It doesn't provide it, does it? This is again referring to some of the things I've talked about during the week, is the bone. It is the bone without any nutriment on it. 
which we chew over again and again and again, by bringing unwise attention to it, looking for something within that object, even perhaps within another person. Now, I'll say a little bit more about that in a second, but certainly looking within an object for something it could never possibly in a million years deliver, which is peace, contentment or happiness for you. A lot of our lives in the Western world are founded on the idea that things will make us happy. There is a confusion, as I've mentioned, and I said tonight we'll be pulling some strings together from out the week. Much of our lives in the West are founded on the idea that things will make us happy. They will give us some sense of being in this world. So much so that a confusion occurs. The confusion occurs between having and being. That's one of the most fundamental confusions that there is, that we have. That we are what we have. Now, I think it's very strongly highlighted, of course, that that is not the case. That we... Our being isn't founded on things that we have or things that we might possess. It's also not founded in some ways on an other, another person giving us happiness, giving us contentment, giving us peace. I think I, again, sort of slightly joked about it one night and saying, what a terrible demand you place on somebody. In a sense, when you say explicitly or even implicitly, make me happy. I kind of think that's the death knell of relationship as well. When you place an overarching demand on the other, which can never be fulfilled, because no other material other or human other can possibly have the gift of making you happy of giving you contentment of giving you peace happiness can be created but it can't be given to you things of this world will not do it for you so unwise attention is this constant demand that we bring to things of the world or bring to the things of the world and to the various people we come in contact with to make us happy. Where is the happiness going to arise from? Well, it's not going to arise from something external that we are dependent on. This is something, again, the Buddha is making very, very clear. It is only from ourselves, from something within ourselves, that happiness, peace or contentment will arise. It's not from something other. That doesn't mean to say, of course, and you heard me talk quite a bit about relationship last night, that you know, relationship isn't important. It's absolutely fundamentally important. But don't place within relationship undue demands which can never be satisfied. This is a kind of realism of looking at what goes on in ordinary day-to-day 
relationships. The relationships with the world of things and the relationship with the world <coughs> of others. <coughs> things at best, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with this, and I think I've said this on quite a number of occasions, things at best will give you pleasure. And that's fine, as long as you don't get attached to it. Don't get attached to the pleasure. Um, Someday you might have to do without your things, whatever they are. We generally um, know we've got a problem if there is, and I always say to, often offer this out as a little thought experiment, is there something in your life that you know it would be incredibly difficult to do without? Is there something in your life that's incredibly difficult to do without? It doesn't have to be people at this stage. Just think of something. You'd say, oh, I couldn't do it without a cup of coffee. Or whatever it might be. Um, when, I was, when I was actually living in India, you used to get the kind of things that people were really attached to. Because often when people used to come home to the West, and sometimes I used to come home to the West occasionally, people would say, bring me some chocolate. <laughs> Or the other one was, bring me some Marmite. <laughs> These are just things you can't get in India. Um, the chocolate has got some additive to it, which makes it taste absolutely filthy to stop it from melting in the Indian heat. And so it tastes absolutely disgusting. <laughs> um, But these are the sort of things that you know that you can be attached to. And just do yourself, you know, not tonight particularly, but do a little thought experiment. Think what it is that you really, in a sense, couldn't do without. Because in a way, if there is something of that sort, then you know you've got a problem. Because you might not always get it. And then, albeit, given the kind of things I've outlined here that it's fairly minor, it will still cause you distress to do without it. And you will be there craving it, even if you haven't got it. So this shows, in a sense, a degree of unfreedom in our lives. That we're not free um, that we are bound to certain things. Now, actually amplify that. And I've given you something very innocuous, which is just ordinary things like, you know, a cup of tea, some chocolates, some marmite. You know, all of these little things that you might say, oh, I couldn't do without that. I've got to have that in the morning when I get up. You know, that sort of thing. Um, amplify that into all of the dimensions of your life. People. objects, the things around you. All of this, in a way, is entrapping. This is what the Buddha refers to as entanglement. Being entangled. Um, This is our condition. We are entangled. There's no need to get miserable about it because the whole process that we've been engaging in in the week the process of mindfulness, this is the very thing that the Buddha speaks about as disentangling, disentangling the tangle. You know? Who's going to disentangle the tangle, says the Buddha? You know? He says, you're like a knotted ball of string, all bound up, all kind of crisscrossed and knotted and tied up. 
he said, covered with matted grass and hair. <laughs> yeah. And who's going to untangle it? Implying, of course, he's not. <laughs> he's not going to untangle the tangle. It's only you that can untangle the tangle. You know, so even if the Buddha is saying, I can't untangle the tangle, how is somebody else going to do it for you who's not awakened? You know, putting it in the realm of our interrelationships. How is somebody else going to give you happiness? How is somebody else going to you know, provide that peace and contentment for you? Because they are changing and you are changing. Yeah. So even if there is a modicum of stability and, in scare quotes, peace and contentment, that will change necessarily as people change. If our happiness, our contentment or our peace is founded in an other. And this is not a recipe for going off to, you know, I don't know, a cave in the Himalaya. <laughs> Uh, in sort of some pessimistic idea that people are not going to make me happy. Oh, it's not even as bad as Jean-Paul Sartre. Hell is other people. <laughs> his idea of hell, I don't know if you've ever come across this, it's in one of his plays. His idea of hell is being trapped in a room for eternity with four people. <laughs> Very opposite of being happy <laughs> here. So, it's not people that are the problem, it's not things that are the problem. It's our over-evaluation of what they can do for us that becomes the problem. And therefore we get entrapped, we get entangled in the things of this world and in what I call incorrect relationship because we expect those things or those people, to do something for us that they can never do, they can never provide. And this is something the Buddha stressed very strongly. Don't mistake, he says, those things that, never, that can never give you happiness as things that can give you happiness. Don't mistake that. If we do, we're into this, well... The monkey was one version of it. Into this entanglement, into this entrapment, into this stickiness of sensual pleasure, giving us gratification, giving us pleasures, giving us something that it cannot do. Let's just dwell with the, the things for a second. Of course, things, as I've mentioned tonight and other times before, will give us pleasure. Take your pleasures and enjoy them. Please do. It's important. It's important that we enjoy all of our senses. But it's also important that we don't keep looking for sensory stimulation in the same ways again and again and again and again. Because this is what often happens. We look for sensory stimulation again and again and again. We find ourselves more and more deeply entrapped. And in a sense, like the addict having to do it even more frequently. Yeah. If a little bit of something is good, then a lot more should be even better. Try doing that with chocolate cake. <laughs> you just end up feeling sick. <laughs> yeah. One slice is nice, two slices might be okay, 
eat the whole cake and you feel really ill. You know? And in a way, that's what's happening. We're trying to eat the whole cake here in ordinary life. And as a result of it, we feel sick as dogs a lot of the time um, because we're gorging, overindulging on something which actually ultimately, like something sweet and sticky and very seductively attractive, actually has no nutrition in it at all. It doesn't provide us with any sustenance whatsoever. People, when we look to others to provide us with this happiness that they can't do, then we bring this death knell to relationship because we're creating an undue demand which, as I've said before, can never be satisfied. Happiness will not be provided by the other person. Happiness will only arise from internal circumstances, from the transformation of mind, which I've spoken about in some form or another every night so far this week. That it's only by via transforming our own minds that actually the possibility of happiness arises in relationship. Yeah. Don't expect it to arise simply in relationship without some sort of mental transformation, some, without some sort of realistic understa- understanding of how happiness can never arise given to you by the other person. Yeah. It's very salutary if we actually think about that. Because often the search throughout life is for somebody else to make you happy. Ultimately, of course, from the Buddhist perspective, this is an abnegation an abnegation of responsibility, of the responsibility that we have. You know? Now, we can play with that word, and it's a nice word to play with in English. There's not many words that you can translate and then play with them in English. Responsibility is a wonderful one, because not only does it mean to take responsibility for ourselves, but to, de- do, but to develop a responsibility, an ability to respond to the other correctly with wise attention with yonaso manasakara not looking in other words for the other to provide you with that which they can never provide you with not looking for the things of the world to do that equally to provide us with something they cannot provide us with life is a constant balancing act. Just to move on to something slightly different, but within the same theme. Life is a constant balancing act. There is a story, again to be found in the Sutta material, of, in ancient India, a couple of um, jugglers and balancers arriving. You know, these people that sort of balance on each other's shoulders and do all the kind of stuff that they do. And they arrive in the village square and one of the people, one of these gymnasts, one of these people who do the balancing acts, says to the other, he says, I'll look after your balance if you look after my balance. And the other one says to him, says, no, no, no. You look after your balance and I'll look after my balance. (laughs) And this really brings home to us, I think, 
that you can't look to an other to provide balance for you. You can't look after somebody else's balance. They can't look after your balance. Life is this balancing act. However, the balance and the true balance can only be found by the perfection of mindfulness. In other words, what mindfulness aims at is a perfection of balance in life, ultimately. The balanced individual. The focused individual. One of the things that you'll notice from your practice that you keep on doing is going back to a point of focus. We have concentration, which is intense focus, but we also have the coming away from thought, having befriended thought, and I'm going to say some more about that, and the whole aspect of kindness and love as well as feeding into this practice. But let me just stay with this a second, which is we come back, having befriended what is there, back to a point of focus, focusing on the breath. We might be doing various tasks, looking at the breath's length, looking at its quality, and there's many other things you can do with it. We've only done basically two things with the breath in ways of looking at it. Looking at the way breathing occurs. So we have this point of focus. And the reason for this is, that is the balanced life is a focused life. Without the retention of focus in life, in other words, with the scattering and fragmentation of our attention, unwise attention, because there's all of these goodies out here all offering or proffering happiness, and our attention gets pulled to all of them. And, you know, I always feel that um, when we walk out into the ordinary world, go into a supermarket, it's like a child in a, I don't know, in a sweet shop, isn't it? There's everything there, every possible conceivable permutation of different brands and you know, slightly different things that are there on the shelves, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. Yeah. Uh, we walk into any department store, and again, we are proffered all of these different things, like, you know, millions of them, different things. And you know, it's just a bit like a child. You know, which one do I have? Oh, I can have that one, I can have that one too. <laughs> you know? um, and we lose focus because our attention is pulled all the way. If you... I don't know about you, but any time I walk into these places, I have difficult making choices. There's so many things. <laughs> you know, so many things to choose from, we end up going, ooh, can't choose at all. <laughs> yeah. So our attention gets scattered. It gets fragmented over all sorts of things. Now, I've given you the example of the material world. This can equally be so with a kind of voracious insatiable appetite for knowledge as well. It can be almost out over any field you want where there is an awful lot, where there is a plethora of material, where we are caught in this fragmentation, being scattered, where our attention is drawn in all different places. So not as only as unwise attention looking for something that can't be provided, it's scattered as well. It's not focused. Wise attention focuses on what something realistically can provide 
and what it can't. It's about correcting a mistaken apprehension of the world, what the world can do for you and what it can't. All of the major existential things, which of course is what primarily brings us to centres like this and primarily brings us to practice, all of the existential things in a way cannot be solved by all of that stuff that's out there. It's almost like something that Wittgenstein said, but he said it in relationship to science. I thought it was very interesting. You know, Wittgenstein, the Austrian philosopher, in one of his denser tomes, something called the Tractatus, he says this. He says, when all the problems of science have been solved, it will leave the problems of life completely untouched. He doesn't mean, of course, that you won't have advances in medical science and you won't have advances in you know, technology and things like this. But the existential problems, the real problems, the problems that ultimately make us suffer, and I don't just mean physically, but the problems that make us suffer mentally will not be touched by all of that stuff. So no matter how good the technology that you import into your life to make your life easier, it will not solve the deep existential issues. It will not solve, for example, the problem of your relationship with life, and let's put the other end of it, death. It will not solve those problems either. Either of those problems, I should say. So, the balanced life is the life that has focus in it. This is what the Dharma, or the Dhamma as it is called in Pali, is meant to provide. A focus in life. This is what the practice of the Satipatthanas, the four foundations of mindfulness, is meant to provide. Focus and balance in life. It is the balancing of the different aspects, the attention to body, the attention to feeling, the attention to mind, and the attention to mind phenomena or minds, you know, mind dimensions. All of this helps to provide balance in life, founding us in something which hopefully begins to reiterate the important aspects of life which almost go completely un- overlooked, which are almost completely overlooked when we are unwisely focusing our attention on all this other stuff. In fact, this unwise attention can also be seen under another term, which is avoidance. We spend our lives trying to avoid having to deal often with the real issues of life until they catch up with you. I have a vision of somebody trying to run while a snowball is catching up with them. (laughs) You, know, you can keep on running and you can run as fast as you like, but eventually the snowball is going to catch up with you and then it's splat <laughs> as it hits you. Now, I'm joking about this, but of course, for a lot of people, this can be tragedy. You know, when the real tragedies of life are hit somebody and they find themselves without resources whatsoever to be able to deal with that. To be pulled into, for example, 
professions and work which are highly, highly demanding, yet there are no resources to deal with that kind of work. There is nothing left, and so eventually people are running on empty, ultimately. And, of course, all of this can be dealt with by, in some senses, having a focus and balance in life, which is a constant, something which is there. Now, the practice itself is, as I've said before, a practice. It's practicing for real life, for providing you with those resources to be drawn on in times of immense distress, minor distress, all of the issues that arise for us in the course of ordinary life it's there to be provide resources for you in the course of often these days highly demanding work situations now often yes you can try and change these things you can possibly try and change work situations but more more often than not these are often outside of our control they're part of a bigger picture of which we have very little control over whatsoever. So again, what can we do in those situations? All we can do is provide ourselves with the resources that stop us from being completely drained by them, by completely being sucked dry by those situations or work contexts. The Satipatthana and the whole practice of mindfulness is meant to do this for you if you stabilize yourself in it as a daily practice this is touching on stuff i'm going to go on to talk about tomorrow in the winding up session when we really finish off so life is a balance it's keeping that balance the only balance you can look after is your own balance and perhaps others around you will feel more balanced by your balance in life I don't know if you've ever thought about that either. If you are more focused, more balanced, others might actually follow suit and begin to become more balanced themselves as well. Now, fundamental to this, and I want this to be the kind of closing dimensions I want to say, fundamental to this, of course, is something I've spoken about as I mean implicit throughout the practice, which is the practice of love, the practice of kindness within it. Now let me just remind you, I'm going to read you the metasutta again. I'm going to bore you. I'm going to read you something you've heard before. Yeah, The metasutta again, because um, I think this is such an important sutta, and there are aspects I just want to pick up on it with you. He who is skilled in welfare, who wishes to attain that calm state of nibbana should act thus. They should be able, upright, perfectly upright, of noble speech, gentle and humble, contented, easily supported with few duties, of light livelihood, with senses calm, discreet, not impudent and not greedily attached. They should not pursue the slightest thing for which otherwise Others might censure censure them. May all beings be happy and secure. May their hearts be wholesome. Whatever living beings there be, feeble or strong, 
tall, stout or medium, short, small or large, without exception, seen or unseen, those dwelling far or near, those who are born or those who are about to be born, may all beings be happy. Let none deceive another, not despise, nor despise any other person, whatsoever in any place. Let them not wish any harm to another out of anger or ill will. Just as a mother would protect her only child at the risk of her own life, even so, let them cultivate a boundless heart towards all beings. Let their thoughts of boundless love pervade the whole world, above and below, across, without any obstruction, without hatred and without any enmity. Whether they stand, walk, sit or lie down, as long as they are awake, they should develop this mindfulness. This, they say, is the noblest way of living here. Not falling into wrong views, being virtuous and endowed with insight by discarding attachment to sense desires, never again is such a one reborn. Pretty powerful stuff, I think, if you really listen to it. Um, but there's a couple of things I just want to pick up on because this is related to why I've made this the central in some part a central part of the practice this week. The kindness towards yourself. Absolutely vital for all the reasons and I'm not going to go through them again that I've stated before, but particularly because of our relations with others. If we're not kind, and I will only say this, if we're not kind to others, it's increasingly difficult to become Kind to ourselves. Kindness to self and kindness to others is interlinked. You know, it's not an either or. You, know, you can't be kind to others and lacerate yourself. You can't lacerate others and be kind to yourself. It is a dependent arising. You know. In the text, it says, after all of this, and this is towards the end whether they stand, walk, sit or lie down, as long as they are awake, they should develop this mindfulness. That's deliberately said. Love itself is a mindfulness. Love is nothing else than a mindfulness. It's a way of being aware, awake and alert towards others and towards ourselves. It is a mindfulness in the sense that we need to keep recollecting it as well. It's so vitally important. We've only got to look at the madness in the world with the hatred and enmities, um, all of the violence that we see in the contemporary world to understand something. That love is something that is sorely needed in our world. Certainly, if not love directly, then kindness is something that is sorely needed in our world. In the Dhammapada, it's actually in the opening sections of the Dhammapada, this much, much translated Pali text, the Buddha is saying, not by hatred is hatred cured. Only by love is hatred cured. And this is an ancient rule. He's saying that two and a half thousand years ago that it's an ancient rule. <laughs> you know, have we learned anything? 
Perhaps we have to a certain degree, but I still see a sore lack of kindness and gentleness and love in this world. And this is something the Buddha is really, really stressing. So much so, I haven't stressed it this week, but this is why I want to finish it off on this last talk in the evening, is that the Buddha, I think, sees the path of love itself, the path of kindness, as being a path to awakening in itself. This is why he's referring to someone who is sitting, lying, standing. The classic formula for all of the Satipatthanas. If I read the Satipatthana Sutta to you, you would find exactly the same formulation talked about observing body, observing feelings, observing mind states, and observing the contents of mind. Yeah? You would find exactly the same formula used. Whether you're sitting, standing, lying down, or walking, you should maintain mindfulness of body, feelings, mind states, and the contents of mind. Yeah. The Buddha is saying exactly the same thing about metta, kindness, love, that we should maintain them in all of the states that we engaged in. And pretty well, I think, that covers all of our physical postures, doesn't it? Sitting, standing, lying down, and walking. Yeah, I can't think of many others, can you? Um, it's meant to be comprehensive and covering all of our physical postures. So one who is alert and aware will constantly recollect the thought of kindness, the thought of love, in their lives and bring it hopefully as a gift to others as well as to yourself it's one of the greatest gifts that you can offer to others is kindness and gentleness it's the greatest gift that you can offer to yourself as I've kind of indicated over the days that I've been talking and particularly one talk I gave very brief talk I gave in the morning prior to the sessions we forget it sometimes, and the tradition tends to forget it, with an overfixation um, on wisdom. You know, we tend to think wisdom is what it's all about. You know, insight will come to you just the same way with the development of love, with the development of kindness. Insight will come to you through the development of compassion as well. Now, again, another quote. It's a quotation night tonight. A quote here, actually, it's from a later text. It's from a, a Tibetan text um, that I quoted, actually translated for a course I recently gave in the States. And it goes like this. It's, it's, I think it's rather lovely. A person who, having taken refuge, has become the site for spiritual growth. Taking refuge is literally entering the Buddhist way, entering the Buddhist path. Such a person will cultivate their mind for the welfare of all those who are alive. They will do so by letting the flower of compassion blossom in the soil of love. And they will tend it with the pure water of equanimity in the cool shade of joyfulness. I think it's rather beautiful. Particularly that last. Let me just read I'm a sucker here for this one. Uh, let me just read this last bit to you again. You will do this by letting the flower of compassion 
blossom in the soil of love. That's your love. That's not just love. By tending it with the pure water of equanimity in the cool shade of joyfulness. That's the task. And all of that will lead you to the same goal of insight as any of the other practices. The wisdom-oriented practices which are so dominant and so emphasized these days. Um, in recent years, actually this is an unusual year in teaching pure Vipassana this year, I've often t- taught just metta and compassion as being a path, um, as developing insight. Um, but I don't want to let it stand outside of what we're doing in a more pure, com- more pure Vipassana retreat in that this is central. That unless you bring it into your Vipassana practice, that practice, as I've said, and I do want to emphasize this yet again, becomes cold. There's nothing worse than cold Vipassana. (laughs) You get to the feast too late, and what you've got? Cold Vipassana. You know, what you want is nice, warm Vipassana. (laughs) And it's in that form of Vipassana, that warm Vipassana, that compassion will grow as well. Compassion for yourself and compassion for others. And ultimately, blossom forth, really, in equanimity. And equanimity is... Important because, as I've said before, it is a synonym for nibbana. It is a synonym for the balanced life. Equanimity is the completely balanced life. That doesn't let things pull you in this way and the other way, in all directions. What what happens to assail you in ordinary life? It is the balanced life which understands that life is a mixture. It is a mixture of all sorts of things. It is a mixture of pain and pleasure. Life does not come to us with one unalloyed taste. It comes in many, many different tastes. But to bring, if you like, these things, and one aspect I've failed to mention, which is also extremely important, which is appreciative joy. Yeah. The joy that appreciates what you have, what qualities you are endowed with, what qualities others have, and what they are endowed with. What joys that they have in their lives, what joys do you have in your life? Rather than always complaining about life, This is an antidote to the complaining. It's an appreciation of what life gives us. Okay, it's not unalloyed pleasure. It's not unalloyed, you know, um, joyfulness in the sense we're always going to get what we want. But we have joys within our lives. Appreciate them. They're jewels which arise in your life. There is a form of Japanese Buddhism which is called Shin Buddhism. I don't have much in common with it as a practice, but one practice I really do think is extremely important is the practice of gratitude. Their prime practice is the practice of gratitude, being grateful for what they have, 
for what you're endowed with. It's the same as appreciation. So every morning in Shin Buddhism, they go to the temple and they basically are, in some senses, sitting with gratitude for what they are endowed with, what the person is endowed with. Perfect antidote to the complaining that goes on about what we haven't got, what we still need. You know, appreciate what you've got. Take joy in it. You know, take pleasure in it, but particularly joy here. In a way, also, this helps to balance the compassion because compassion is focused often on the pain of others and our own pains, our own suffering. So this appreciative joy helps to balance that out, that too much compassion practice can lead, in some senses, to, unfortunately, being miserable, you know, being extremely upset, emotionally upset by the sheer quantity of pain that's out there. Because there's an awful lot out there, isn't there? Yeah. Across all of the species, if you think about it, not just humans, but across all of the species, all of the animal species that we know, there is such pain and there is such suffering. However, it's balanced when we begin to think in terms of joy and ultimately come to rest in this understanding of life as both joy and pain. I'm going to finish there, and I'm going to finish off on a practice, actually. It's actually the practice which is used, or the sayings which are used in Upeka, which is equanimity. If Nibbana is equanimity, which is something I would claim, it's the perfect equanimous state, then this, I think, sums it up. This is, again, this comes from a late Sri Lankan Commentary again, something I translated for this course recently, and it's as you probably know in in the practice of the Brahma Viharas, which are these four practices: the practice of love, the practice of compassion, the practice of appreciative joy, and the practice of equanimity. Phrases are often used to evoke the states, to help you in a sense to use the constructive imagination to think about love, compassion, etc. Often the practices, I think, are done very wrongly in the sense that they're mere repetitions. You just recite the phrases and somehow it's meant to do something for you. It's it's complete nonsense. What it is, is not a, a reciting practice, it's a listening practice. You recite and then you listen. You say something and then you listen to what the response is. Take a typical meta phrase, which is, may I be well and may I be happy. Throw that out into the universe and see what comes back at you by listening for a response. It's like dropping a pebble in a pond and watching the resonances move outwards. What we're doing with the phrase is exactly that. And so with this final phrase, the phrase which is used for equanimity, and again, as I say, out of a late Sri Lankan Commentary, and it's one of the most beautiful ones I've found, actually. And it goes like this, and I'll finish off on this. This life is but a play of joy and sorrow. May we remain undisturbed by life's rise and fall. I care so deeply for you 
but you are the owner of your actions and their fruit. And sadly, I cannot keep you from distress. I'll finish off on that. Thank you. Okay, as usual, I kind of overrun time. <laughs> um, some chances for questions or comments or anything, you know, say anything. <laughs> yeah, Catherine. Yes. Well, often we fixate on the same thing. We often fixate on the same thing simply because I think we can be overwhelmed by choice. Overwhelmed by the amount of stuff that is out there. So we tend to fixate on similar things. However, I think it can go go both ways, to be quite honest. And I can see why you're confused, because it can actually go both ways. We can fixate or we can spread ourselves. We can keep on looking, keep on trying something keep on moving on to something else to see if it will give us the pleasure. In other instances, we might just fix on the one thing and keep doing it again and again and again because we think that's going to give us pleasure. So it's, it's, it's not an either-or, it's an and-both. We're possibly engaged in both. A lot of the time. Because mm. even though a lot of the time we do do it on our own, um, and 
here we're, we're in a group environment where we're kind of pretending we're on our own. <laughs> <laughs> Are you pretending? <laughs> in, in a way. <laughs> Let me, let me respond to that. I respond, I respond to that in a way by putting it in, in this form. Actually, deliberately misquoting the title of somebody else who teaches here quite a lot, Stephen Batchelor, one of his early books, in fact his first book, which was called Alone with Others. Um, I would actually say actually, meditation is alone for others. That's what we're doing. We're being alone for others. Yeah. Because our relations are so skewed by the kinds of things that often you know, I've talked about quite a lot, you know, the things that we look for in relationships that actually can't be provided by another, then I think we need that aloneness to, in order to develop inner strength, inner capacities to then bring to the other. Yeah. Without that... I think that we're always going to be caught in this... Without that inner strength, without that inner development, we're always going to be caught in, in the trap of looking for something that an other cannot provide for us. It's like... I agree with you in the sense that it is a relational field. Of course it is. That even um, the practice of meditation actually implies that relational field. As I've emphasized to you again and again and again, sitting here week in, week out will be good training, but ultimately it's no substitute for living. Yeah. You've actually got to get out into ordinary life. If you ever leave, if you ever if you ever fortunate enough to stay in a, in a monastery, for example, you'll find that the monastery, of course, is just like a community. It's just nothing else. It's a community. Meditation that's practiced within there, in some senses, helps community relations. All of the other stuff that I've even mentioned, the ethics, what's that about? Ethics wouldn't be necessary if there wasn't others. <laughs> you know, ethics is only there, and morality is only there because of others. So actually what I say is we're we doing this alone for others. Yeah. The notion of aloneness, of course, yes, I think is artificial in a way. You can take yourself off into the Himalaya and sit in a cave, but in a way you're still not alone. Yeah. You know, others are always with you, yeah. um, even if it's just in memory, if nothing else. Um, so what we're always doing is we're doing it for others, and I think this has always been recognised at the very foundation of Buddhism, that the whole point about the practice is... Um, I just think it's pure... If it wasn't, it would be just pure self-indulgence. Yeah. 
would have very, very little meaning to our general being with others in the world. And actually, we are most ourselves, actually, and this is a claim I'd make, I can't substantiate it now because we kind of finished the end of the talk, but you know, I'd actually claim that we are beings for others. Yeah? And that's when we most feel ourselves, when we're being for others. Yeah? Actually, in, in that self isn't the self of the ego either, when that's, there, you know, when that's present. What these practices are generating is a genuine way of being for others. By creating, um, let me go back to the final part of the talk I was giving this evening, talking about those qualities. Compassion, love, appreciative joy, equanimity. You know, all of those qualities are actually about how we are with others, ultimately. You know, yes, you can have self-love, but yeah, that becomes just self-indulgence. It becomes narcissism, actually. It becomes narcissistic if it's not balanced by caring for others and kindness for others. You know, as you've heard me say, that is entirely relational because self-laceration, self-laceration out there, you know, lacerating the other. You know, kindness in here, the possibility of kindness to the other. Compassion here, the possibility of compassion to the other, and so on and so forth, through all of those practices. Yeah. So, whilst I might not have stressed it, I think it's implicit the whole way through of the practice that it is about being in a shared world, and not just with human others, I might add. It's with non-human others as well, and that's extremely important. Yeah, so, to kind of response to it. I just thought this idea of, about mindfulness and, and it being so central to the Buddhist tradition. Um, I'm wondering how the traditions kind of fit in around that, thinking that, um, for example, to say Christians are, um, mm-hmm. who um, don't practice a mindfulness practice, but I do sense the love that they cultivate through mm-hmm. their beliefs does, <clears throat> you know, does emanate out the mm-hmm. feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, I can reflect on it. I can't, in a sense, answer a question of that form. Um, I can reflect on it in the sense that I think that, yes, of course, the virtues are there within many traditions. They're within Islam, they're within Christianity, they're within Judaism. The one thing, the big thing, of course, that demarcates Buddhism Um, as a tradition from those other major religious world religions, let's call them world religions, from those other world religions, is the absence of a creator God. Um, The practice of these virtues often, often, I'm not saying entirely, because, you know, talking about Christianity is like trying to talk about Buddhism. You know, there are many, many different forms. And as you've heard me talk about distinctions, you know, here's Tibetan Buddhism, here's Shin Buddhism, here's Zen, here's Theravada, and here's early Buddhism. You know, there's lots and lots of different forms. So I can't overgeneralize, but most of those traditions are doing it in, in relationship to that creator God. You know, it's, it's, um, that is the driving force. It's love of God. However you might interpret that, and there's myriads of interpretations, that becomes a driving force 
um, behind a lot of those practices. It's not the same with Buddhism. I'm not wanting to claim it's better. I certainly wouldn't want to do that. I'm just saying it's different because it's not underpinned by any theistic religious belief whatsoever. Um, as you heard me say the other night, I don't even think Buddhism is a religious tradition, ultimately. Certainly not in its, begin- not in its inception, anyway. It's not really a religious tradition as we call a religious tradition. Um, and it's certainly unlike those theistic religious traditions in that its virtues arise out of psychology, out of the workings of the mind and the understanding of the workings of the mind, and not out of primarily a belief structure. And those are the terms. But I wouldn't want to undermine the genuine you know, love that, say, a Sufi generates in their practice. You know, that seems sometimes very close to Buddhism in some ways, but it still has the idea of a, a creator within it. Some forms of Christian service and compassion and love. You know, I suppose ultimately for me, um, the proof always comes down how how do people behave. You know, whether they be Christian, Jew, Muslim, you know, whatever. How do they behave? What's going on? Because all of us can say all sorts of things. I could sit up here and spout all sorts of stuff about Buddhism, um, but live a completely wrong life. It's how you behave, ultimately. It's not what the doctrinal underpinnings are. You know, um, as, again, something Wittgenstein says, ethics demonstrates itself, it can't be said. <laughs> Yeah, it can only be shown. Yeah. And I think the case is with all of those. Perhaps the beauty of, of that is you know, that um, Christian love shows itself. Muslim love shows itself, you know, whatever the form is. Yeah. So it's a kind of response. I can't, in a sense, answer a question. Mm. That's all. Yeah. It just sounded at one point implicit in what you were saying, that mindfulness, Buddhist mindfulness, you know, if you really kind of want to capture it, mm. is that you know, almost... It's the it's the direct. I mean, certainly, in as regards what the Buddha says about it, he calls it ekayana. He calls it the one path to realization. Yeah, now, it's a pretty strong statement. Or the another way of translating it, ekayana would be the direct path to realization. In other words, it cuts out all superfluities, mm. anything that's unnecessary. And takes you on the, if you like, the royal road to it. I mean, it's, it's, it's as strong as that. And I can only kind of recite what's said in the text. Mm. It's as strong as that. Uh, that if you really want awakening, and that's the whole point about it, if you want awakening, and I don't, you see, I don't think Christianity, Islam and Judaism aims at awakening mm. in the sense that the Buddha talks about it. You know, they have different goals within their religious horizons. Um... I don't think the way the Buddha would define awakening and the whole process of awakening is really within those religious traditions. So you're comparing unlike with unlike here. So yes, within the Buddhist framework, this is the direct path to realisation because it aims at the eradication of dukkha and the awakening experience. I don't think there's anything entirely equivalent within those other religious traditions. Yeah, there's one question there, and then uh, Mark. Your exchange with Stephen reminded me of an interview that Stephen, uh, Peter Senge gave uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, Peter Senge is a famous uh, management theorist and practitioner and meditator from 
Probably more lucrative than being a monk. I suppose the quick answer to that is yes. <laughs> I think they do. I mean, in some ways, there, there are um, you know, there are some moves being made in that direction. I'm, I'm personally am involved in the Oxford Mindfulness Centre, which is a centre which we've set up um, partly, and the main part of it still at the moment is the therapeutic work working and developing mindfulness in you know, contexts of mental health problems and things like that. But one of the things that we're actually working on at the moment of developing is mindfulness within organisations yeah, and mindfulness within education as well. And these are the two areas and we're actually, I've actually been in quite a number of meetings over the last year um, with management consultants actually talking about how we would actually even language this yeah, because languaging it is going to be very important because the sort of language I'm using here to you in this context is completely inappropriate if you went into a business organisation and wanted to put forward you know, these values and these ideas and, and develop them in a sort of more collective way. So that's one problem. Um, and the other problem is the strategies of actually how you implement it here. So it's still in the consultancy basis at the moment, but it is something that we're very, very seriously looking at and it isn't something that happens in the East, no. It is something that's very, very much a Western development. Important one for me is actually taking it into education from quite you know, small children. You know, and again, developing it as a practice um, to enable children to experience often something they don't experience at all these days, something called silence. So uh, the quick answer is yes, but that's the sort of thing I know that's happening certainly in this country because I'm involved in it. So. Yeah, there's one last question. Um, may I ask you, please, to put the two uh, things which you quoted this evening on the board? Uh, the one about the uh, saga, I cannot keep you from distress, uh-huh. and also the other one about the pure water of equanimity. Uh, the pure water of equanimity, yeah, sure, I'll come do that. Yeah, certainly. Thank you. It'll be t- tomorrow it'll be now, so <laughs> I won't get them up tonight. Yeah, Nick. Um, in a lot of your talks, um, and I kind of sense that having listened to Stephen Batchelor as well, he 
he has a similar approach to you in that you, you reference early, the early text. That's kind of a phrase you use a lot, the early yeah. text. Mm. Um, to, for me, that seems um, something that I'm really interested in because it's, I get the sense also it's a more authentic, mm. the most authentic uh, voice the Buddha would have. Yeah. So, certainly from what you and um, Stephen say, and it kind of strips out all of, all of the, as you say, the religious kind of extenuating stuff that's mm. kind of overlaid over the centuries yeah. since, since his time. The, the material that you reference is the Pali the Pali It's the Pali Canon, Canon yeah. yeah, it does. Right. My question is, is there, um, is there, are there books that are quite easily accessible in terms of reading? But that actually reading the suttas, which mm -hmm. um, I, mean, I find not quite so illuminating as when you talk. <laughs> <laughs> when you, in your talk, you know, you reference them and then you find mm -hmm. it's much more easily understandable. Yeah. I'm just finishing off one <laughs> at the present moment, actually, which will include a lot of the stuff about early Buddhism. It's a general introduction to Buddhism, but it, it, the, the part which I've really um, done a lot of work on is actually looking at the early canon and what the Buddha is saying in the early canon. So, yes, that should be out next year at some point next year. I'm just in the process of finishing it off at the moment. There is material around. Um, it's not always easily accessible. I would only, you could only probably access it through libraries because it's too expensive to buy, but there is material around. There's a book, there's a wonderful book I would recommend to everybody, but only get it out of the library because it is too expensive. Just, the publishers have gone completely bananas with what they're charging for it. Um, it's a book called How Buddhism Began, and it's by Richard Gombrich. And some of the things that I've alluded to, you'll find within within that particular book, um, and a lot more as well. It's, it's, he, he used to be the president of the Pali Text Society. Um, he was the head of the Pali Text Society, plus he was professor of Sanskrit at Oxford. Um, but it's a very good readable book, because it actually was a lectures. It was a series of lectures that he gave, actually, and so it's quite accessible. So I, that's one I'd recommend. It's a good one. Um, there's a lovely chapter in there on who who was Angulimala. <laughs> yeah. How Buddhism began by Richard Gombrich. Yeah, he's the he's the son of the famous um, art historian Ernst Gombrich. Yeah. Yeah. So that's one I'd recommend. Do you mind writing that on the? Okay. <laughs> if I remember, <laughs> I've got to stay mindful for this. <laughs> Okay, I think we probably should finish there. And uh, once again, thank you everybody for listening. Thank you.